Hello, and welcome to Makers.dev episode number 19. Chris, howdy. Howdy. <laughs> How? <laughs> How's it going? How, how are you uh, doing? It's going all right. Um, I, I fixed my toilet. <laughs> so, okay, so that's better. Um, the entire subfloor was not ruined like I thought it was, so that is good. Uh, the, the wood floor is still messed up, uh, so sometime later we will have to pay someone to either tear it all up and replace it with, like, tile or get clever with we don't have any extra of the wood so we'll have to get clever with like stealing bits of wood from another part of the house and patching it up um, <laughs> like, a, like a skin graft yeah exactly it's like, uh, but okay. for now it all works <laughs> so yeah so that's how i'm doing this week all right good i also was able to fix my metaphorical toilet uh on your recommendation of just like why don't you put all your newsletters in a separate folder and not consider those things you have to do I was able to knock it down and also some actual work of like, I, I actually went through some emails. Uh, I was at over 300 around the time of our last episode. And now I'm at 129, which awesome. if I only do 18 emails per day for the next seven days, by next episode, I'll be back at zero. And I can do roughly the same thing. If I do like 18 of that and 18 to 20 of customer support emails next week, I'm done and I'm, I'm back and I won't feel like a big old piece of poop. I'll feel like a productive, great human being. Uh, yeah, that's cool. That's, that's I, I kind of went the other way this week. I, I usually uh, have like one or two unread emails, and those are like my big to-dos. And now I have up to like 12 or something, and that feels bad. Ooh, 12. I know. I know. <laughs> almost as many Chrome extensions as you have. Um, yeah, but I have to do something for each one of those 12, and like one is taxes, and one like, so I just, uh, yeah, I just got to do it tech stuff is happening for me today too we're recording this on the 15th which is the last day to do things uh, uh, i just i want to i want a person i can just be like do all the things i don't want to do but to do that i need systems so that they get in place and ah ah all right all right we have we have more fun stuff to talk about what did you get up to this last week talk to me about more like ml ai stuff what, yeah what are the uh, um so i did more ml ai stuff um there's a few interesting uh, things we could talk about, but uh, the stuff I did was generally, I did some more GAN stuff. I did some more just playing around with MNIST, sort of re-implementing all the different things that I know, like I know they exist. And so now I kind of have a better understanding of how they work and, you know, how to implement them myself and things like that. Um, so that's all kind of foundational stuff. Um, I have an idea for something I'm sort of exploring in that space, which is neat, uh, not a business idea, but like a sort of like a research idea. So that's kind of interesting, um, trying to get sort of, see if I can get state-of-the-art results using, um, you know, less data and, and, you know, some more advanced techniques. Um, so that's kind of neat. I'm just right now, that's all just fun stuff. Um, so, but, you know, maybe that'll turn into something. Um, a couple of the things that we could talk about around that. Uh, the first one is I want to start teaching some of this AI stuff because my MO is kind of like I learn something and then I start teaching it. And, you know, mm -hmm. that's how I've grown my Twitter following and also like gotten, you know, uh, consulting deals in the past and stuff like that. Um, so I want to do that. But my question is, should I do that under my current domain name, which is chrisishard.com and my current sort of sphere of things I do? Um, or is it different enough from JavaScript web programming that I should start like a new, uh, like a new domain, um, maybe a new Twitter account, something like that? Uh, what do you think about, about doing things under your own domain name when they might clash with, you know, current expectations versus, versus uh, something else? here's my hot take on that i have the exact same problem because i am interested in so many different things that 
have the the only overlap is things Christian is interested in, and we're I'm going to be going off in a whole new direction later this episode. Thirty by five hundred by Amy Hoy and Alex Hillman recommends to start a new blog anytime you're audience building. If if you do the research and you figured out, oh, sign printers is the thing I want to do. You may have some members of your audience that are currently sign printers, but starting from scratch isn't that big of a deal. Uh, so make a new blog that's signprintersusa.com. And that concentrates the audience. And then yes, that audience is much smaller, but it's so much more pure. It's only people who are interested in the thing. The way that I've sort of adapted that for myself is I have several audience building projects in the pipeline at any given moment. One of them is uh, this podcast. One of them is this alumni podcast uh, I'm doing with the people who were in the same academic program as me in college. Another one is like tutorial videos for coding and, and like this learn to code sort of audience. And I think the correct way to frame that is that I have my own personal brand and my personal brand is like, this is me. I'm going to talk about all the things I'm interested in. That's what my Twitter account is. That's what my email list is on my website. And I reference all those things I'm doing from my main account. So like if you are a sign printer and you want to learn about sign printing stuff, okay, well, I'll tweet a few times. And like if I have a piece of exceptional content, I'll, I'll put that on my main brand. But like the, most of the stuff on that is getting chunked out on the sign printing blog. Uh, and that way that sort of keeps my main audience fresh of like, these are people who are, I like to think more holistically interested in me. And then if they want a, a clearer signal of like, actually, no, I'm just interested in coding tutorials. They can subscribe to that YouTube channel and just get that. And I think there's, I think there's more work I could be doing there of like segmenting my email list. I think it'd be cool if uh, like when people signed up, there were check boxes of which of these things would you like to get updates on that Christian's working on? I'm sort of doing that when I launch a new project of like, I'll have a waiting list that'll say, uh, you know, the, the person only wants updates for this specific project. So I have like a, an email list uh, for Clipstep Marketing and I'm only going to email that list for things about Clipstep Marketing. I have another email list about uh, the MicroConf recap and I only email the, them things about MicroConf recap related things. Uh, and sometimes I'll pull in things of those in my main channel and direct stuff outward. Uh, I, I think that's the balance that I'm seeing. So I would recommend starting a new thing and then like referencing it from your main channel uh, and then continuing to reference things if there's like an exceptional piece of content. Like if you launch a new course, I think that would make sense. But for the, for the daily posting, audience building posts, that goes in separate channels. Yeah. Yeah, I think that makes sense. That's sort of what I've been doing up till now. I have like a convert kit. I have multiple lists for, um, you know, every individual like siloed thing I do. Um, and then if I want to email them all, I can always merge that, you know, convert kit to send a mass email or something. But, yeah. um, so yeah, uh, that is probably what I'll do. Um, the other thing I was going to say is learning all this stuff again. So I learned it all, you know, in college and then last year and a couple of years ago, but learning it all again is it, it gives me like a new, um, it, it makes me see things through the learner's eyes again, which I think is always good for an educator to do. Like if you make content, you should probably learn something new just to experience that again. Cause like <laughs> there's something I want to do. Right. And I know it's not that hard. And once I learn it, it's going to be easy, but getting there is like really painful. And you know, so if you take an expert looking back, it's like, why aren't you understanding that it's easy. And if, but as a beginner kind of going through it, um, uh, 
it's just really hard. And so I think that's really good for anyone making content to like, remember that there are people that don't know what you know, and you know, that are, find it very difficult. And so however, you can break that up into, you know, really nice chunks for them to digest is, uh, is good. So yeah, I'm just kind of enjoying that uh, process again, learning something and figuring out how I'm going to teach it to the next, you know, batch of people. I love that idea that if you're making content, if you're teaching people, it's important for you to remember what it's like to be learning those things. I think, I think more generally the lesson there is like, uh, <laughs> if you make dog food, you should own a dog. Like, <laughs> right. You don't necessarily have to eat the dog food yourself, but you should be like using the same product that you're working on. And I feel like that's in a lot of ways why I feel disconnected from file inbox, because that's not a problem that I experience as much and why I feel much more connected to Clipstar marketing. Cause that's a, a problem that I'm having. Uh, and like in the process of doing that, I actually have these problems. I'm exploring the space of what are other ways that I could get this done? What are ways I could get it done in Final Cut Pro? And let me go to all the message boards to see how I can get this done. Like I'm, I'm living and breathing in the space and I'm using it from different angles. Um, and also on the, on the core side of things, taking Ali Abdel's part-time YouTuber Academy, one of the, one of my biggest takeaways from that is just, wow, what a great way to structure a course. What a fantastic experience this was as a student. And how can I steal as much of this as possible for the educational stuff that I'm doing? Uh, yeah, I love that. Uh, my dad also, I had a conversation with him two days ago. He's, he he uh, was a doctor and he's re been retired for a few years and he wants to start a resort uh, at this place in upstate New York uh, that we went to as kids and that he went to as a kid called Jenko Village. It's a place that <laughs> uh, his, his dad and uh, his uncles bought together. Uh, and he has it now and he's wanting to like start a hotel and host weddings and have like experiences of, yeah, you can go out on a kayak. And a problem that I brought up to him that I'm working to frame as positively as I can is that he is not the sort of person who consumes that type of thing. Mm. When he goes and stays in a place, he stays at like a La Quinta and makes fun of people who spend any sort of money on food or entertainment. And where I am trying to nudge him in the direction of is like, I think it would be very valuable for you to experience this as a consumer of wedding venues and, and resort places and experiences. And I showed him Airbnb and uh, he grew up in New York. So you're going to hear my dad impression uh, of his New York accent. But he, he was like, oh my God, it's $40 for a kayak run. So what are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> and I'm like, you think that that's stupid. And because you think it's stupid, you, you are not able to unlock this potential of being able to charge people $40 for a kayak. Because it's going to be a bunch of little stupid things of like, do your life preservers smell bad? That's the sort of thing that yeah. would matter a lot to someone who was paying $40 for the experience. That for him of just like, ah, I picked these kayaks up and they were, they were used. I saved $10 on them. And so they only cost me $25 each and I got a whole bunch of them. Like having the mentality of trying to, to minimize the uh, the cost of something is very different from focusing on revenue expansion of like, how could you provide the best service for someone? And the best layer to be focused on in how can you expand revenue? How can you offer a very valuable product to someone is to be a consumer of those things yourself. Uh, so yes, I think that's really cool that you uh, are becoming a better teacher 
by practicing being a student. I think that that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of great lessons in there for soft, especially software developers building software also, because mm, yeah. we, we do not care about the same things that our customers care about often. Yeah. Um, and so that's where the whole charge more things come, comes from, you know, because I think developers generally don't pay for stuff like executives would pay for things, you know? And so yeah. if you're like making something for a business, it's just, it's a fundamentally different equation in terms of cost, you know, um, when you yeah. compare it to like how much it costs for a person to do the same job, um, you know, your $19 an app, uh, a month app, you know, doesn't, doesn't even register on their, on their radar. Yeah. So, um, very similar. Yeah. For, what formula. a tricky perennial problem of like in, you want to make things for people who are similar to you because then you can understand them. But like, the most value is in making things for people who are dissimilar to you. My dad is going to be charging people money to rent a kayak, but the type of person to do that, the type of person who like would buy a bunch of kayaks and have land to put the kayaks out on is not the type of person who would pay $40 to rent a kayak. So you, you have to be similar in that you like kayaks and that's a thing you value, but you have to be very dissimilar and like someone who starts that business like my dad would probably never in their right mind rent forty dollars for a kayak when they knew the economics of it. Like you could buy a kayak for one hundred fifty dollars. Like what are you doing? Uh, you could buy it and then sell it immediately. Uh, it's a what? It's a it's an interesting problem. Yeah. And it's one that I feel a lot in software. What? One way to fix that, especially, so if you're going to be running a resort, you're going to have to have staff anyway. Um, mm -hmm. It's a little different for us because we're solo devs, you know, mostly. But um, so the fix for your dad is uh, probably to do something like. Go find the best, well, you know, the, the most, the best reasonable uh, kayak renter, you know, in a five-star <laughs> resort somewhere and offer him a yeah. hundred grand to come run his kayak rental place or something, you know, I, yeah. but, but basically to hire people whose job it is to get m people to pay money to do experiences. Um, yes. And, you know, it could only be like one person at the top, like maybe he has a chief experience officer, you know, and pays mm -hmm. them to oversee the whole thing or something. Um, and I don't know how big this resort is going to end up, but, uh, but yeah, basically paying people that are not you and have experience charging $40 for a kayak rental to come yeah. and tell you what you need to do in order to charge that much. I agree that that's a great direction to go in. And that is nowhere near the scale that my dad is at <laughs> nowhere right. near the scale he's even dreaming of, but like, and, and going even further than that, like the concept of hiring someone to help him set up a kayak system to be able to rent that out. I think is something that would be really difficult in his current mindset to justify because he's, he's thinking very small. He's thinking on the scale of like, what are ways that I could save $10 per kayak instead of what are ways that I could turn just the kayak rental part of this into a business that makes, you know, whatever, $10,000 a month over the summer. Yeah. Uh, and to, th those are very different layers to be focused on. And if you're focused on the layer of, how can I expand revenue as much as possible? You can so much more easily justify, okay, maybe I bring in someone who's done this business and hire them to do this thing. And like, there's a subtle difference between these kayaks and actually this does matter. And yes, the, the kayaks themselves cost 10 times more than if I bought them at a garage sale, but that means I get to charge $20 more per kayak rental and the pictures of them look much nicer. And I don't know, maybe they have glass bottoms. And so then they make much more Instagram photos and then that expands the business much more. It's a, it's a, that's, I th I think I tend to be much more critical of my dad when I see this thinking in him, because that's a, that's a, something I notice in myself of right. like, 
saving pennies to oh what's the what's the phrase save pennies and oh, oh penny wise and pound foolish yeah that's the one is that right yes yeah uh, i i noticed that in myself and i'm working very hard to to counteract that and be like okay no yeah this does make sense i can spend a thousand dollars on facebook ads because even if i don't make any money from it i've learned how to do facebook ads and there are people i've talked to who can turn a thousand dollars in facebook ads into ten thousand dollars and like that's <laughs> right. something i would like to be able to do yeah this is funny because I, I actually recognize the same thing in my dad, which is funny. Uh, so my mom and dad own a business. My mom does uh, artwork. She presses flowers and also does watercolors. And then my dad basically oh, is cool. the sales arm of it. So it's kind of a neat thing, right? Um, and so he was an engineer for many years. And now he's like doing this artwork thing. And he makes some decisions. And I go, like, why? Why did you spend a ton of time learning WordPress and fighting with it all yourself rather than just you know paying thirty dollars a month to squarespace it's the same thing he's like well i can host wordpress for five dollars a month or whatever he does (laughs) um but then if i think harder about it it's like well this is his retirement thing like it's not you know like he would like to make more money than he spends on the business but it's not super critical for his livelihood because he has you know his engineers you know retirement that he's living on basically um so I just stopped giving him suggestions that I knew he wouldn't like <laughs> at some point because, um, you know, and, and I'm like, he asked me for tech advice and stuff all the time. So I'm, you know, I'm upfront when he asked me about it and stuff, but it's just like, you know, let him run it how he wants to run it. And, uh, hmm. at, at least in this case, cause you know, it's not like he's going to lose a ton of money now running a resort. You can lose a whole bunch of money doing that. So it's probably good hmm. if he has a really good plan, but, um, yeah. So it's like different, like in this part of my career, I'm working on maximize my future earnings. Uh, but in my dad's, career right now it's like you know how can i retire nicely right so it's just Mm. a different a different mindset this is sort of the opposite of what we talked about last week of yeah in retirement you're trying to enjoy the work and so i think that the unified theory of this that i'm coming to is if you're trying to grow as quickly as possible spend a little bit of effort learning a domain so that you know enough that you can make good decisions on who to hire who to how to spend money to get the thing done that you want done Learn just enough that you know that you need a four-inch pipe instead of a three-inch pipe, and then hire someone else to do it, and then move on to the next project for yourself. And balance that with do work that you enjoy. Don't get stuck managing people and losing track of the reason why you like this. Like both of us, and it sounds like both of our dads are technically-minded people who like getting in the weeds and things, and like given infinite money i would still be doing that i would still be wanting to dig in and learn a thing and like doing the work that's the the, consistently the most fulfilling way that i found to spend my time is learning those things and finding work that i enjoy and then pushing forward meaningfully on projects and so you know if i were my dad and i hired someone to uh create the kayak arm of this resort business like yeah, I think he could be making a lot more money a lot faster. But maybe part of why he's doing this is that he would enjoy figuring that out and like making the systems to to do the kayak. Yeah. Yeah, it's a I don't know that it's straightforward where to be on that spectrum of yeah. doing the work yourself versus hiring it up. Yeah. And the, the other thing he could do is something like if he wants to do it himself but he still wants expert opinions, you know, go on LinkedIn, find the experience officer for some five-star resort and say, "Can I pay a hundred bucks to call you for an hour and just ask yeah, a whole bunch yeah, of questions yeah. about what you would do in my situation. Um, yeah. And see where that goes. I think we talked about this before with me of the, the most effective place for me to be spending time is on human experts. Yeah. Because yeah, that 
then the human expert can like point you in the right direction, but you still get to learn about the thing. And then, oh, even, you know, you, you could maybe after borrowing the expert's time, it becomes clear that it would make more sense to hire someone right away. But that that is a very straightforward bet that will most likely at the very least get you oriented in what the right direction is. You can you can pay a little bit to jumpstart yourself through that initial 20% of work to understand 80% of the thing. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. That's a good general solution. The other thing that I know he's going to run into is he's probably going to start looking for, you know, people with lots of experience or something like that. But for something like say events like weddings, probably like the number one thing that you need to do is especially weddings, make them like Instagram worthy, like you were talking about, which probably means you should hire like a 25 year old out of school who knows everything about Instagram. Right. Yeah. And on paper that looks like a terrible (laughs) hire, but really it's probably a really, really good hire. Um, so, Oh my God, I would pay so much money (laughs) for a Netflix show of my dad (laughs) trying to do business with a 25 year old instagram influencer yeah yeah oh my god that would be so funny that it would just be constant conflict oh man oh that would that would be that would be hilarious he oh my gosh they would they would not be speaking the same language (laughs) but like yeah that would that's his biggest blind spot that's yeah of course and the, the instagram influencer would be like hey it's really important that you like hire this $2,000 photographer to go through all the rooms and take pictures and be like, $2,000. I got a camera right here on my phone. What are you talking about? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm going to suggest that to him just, <laughs> just to see what happens. <laughs> that's, that's really funny. Uh, cool. You've, uh, you've had some projects, uh, seemingly on the back burner for a few weeks of acorn chat and meeting place. Any updates on those? Any interesting things that happened? Yeah. So I did a little work on both of those too. So I'm starting to inch back into there. Um, that's kind of how I, <laughs> that's kind of how I operate. I go really f- far into one field and then sort of inch back into my other one. So meeting place, yeah. I did some work on, I have a little bit more work to expand, uh, the API for an existing customer. Um, I really want to, the next big thing I want to do in meeting place is switch it to tailwind with a new design. Cause I'm getting really, it's getting hard to do things in the old design, um, the way I want them. So, and I know what's like, it in right now. It's in bootstrap. bootstrap yeah. Okay. Um, but I sort of painted myself into a bit of a corner. So I want to do sort of a, a revamp, which on paper doesn't make sense. Like, like why would I do that? But I'm realizing that whenever I go to change stuff, like it just bugs me. Like the, the mm. way the design is, is kind of now and the way it, so. I think I just need to do it for my own uh, sanity. And then I can do some of the other things. I think I, I've gone back and forth with meeting place because I think I could probably get it to one or 2000 MRR without that much work. Um, hmm. Because it's been, and, and of course, if I can get it to that, I should be able to get it to 10 or 20, right? Like that's sort yeah. of the thing, but, um, but I've been avoiding it because I know the work that's coming. Um, and so I've talked about this before, but like to really get to say 10 K MRR, I need a lot of groups with a lot of people in, and groups have a lot of people in them. And so there's going to be a lot of support work. And so I see that support work coming and that's kind of why I backed off mentally because like, I, I just don't, that's not something I want. I don't want to, like we were talking about last week, do we want to, you know, build Squarespace and have, you know, people paying us $19 and running their entire business on our, on our websites, not really as a solo dev. Um, but I think it is worth it for what I have. And like, I know the next few steps, you know, try to get it to say one or two K MRR 
and then see how the support load is. And I can always back mm -hmm. off again, you know, if I get to that and it's starting to get too much, I can back off. Um, but then at least I've, I've tried. So yeah, so I think I'm going to do that with meeting place. Um, Acorn chat too. I'm, I'm started that up again. Like, uh, I actually ran it for the first time in a couple weeks the other day. And so I just need to get that on past the finish line where I can get it to the Slack app store. Um, hmm. so those are my two, two big goals. So get Acorn chat on the Slack app store, get meeting place into tailwind, which will make me more excited to work on it. Um, cool. while still playing with AI stuff. I relate so strongly to avoiding it because you know that there's this work ahead of you of having this huge support load. That's exactly the position I feel like I'm in with file inbox. Uh, and I think our, our personalities and like work proclivity are very similar. There has to be a solution to that, that I'm not seeing of like, I hire somebody, but I don't know that I want to do that. So yeah, same. And it might look like more educational content of, Anytime you have a support request, you film a video about it. Uh, I've, I've sort of seen um, the author of the Montes, uh, Rob Fitzpatrick, do that. He, he has a whole YouTube series where people ask him questions about the book. And instead of replying to them one by one over email, he'll record a little video about it. And I think that works really well. I, I think going into this next batch of customer support emails, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try that because... If there was a backlog of those videos and they were titled well, I could imagine building a system where like, okay, I have public documentation of all this, so you can search through it and it's a live search. So while you're trying to email me, maybe the, the exact problem you're having pops up. Or when you email me, I have some basic ML word matching thing that's like, okay, you know, Christian got this email and he's very bad at customer support email, but he's trying his best. Uh, in the meantime, here are some videos that he's recorded of uh, solutions to this. And thinking about that, now that I've gotten this whole video framework with KMAD and everything else uh, smoothed out, it wouldn't be that much more work to record videos than to just type a response. And then I think for problems that aren't solved in that way, like refunds or something else that need more creative solutions. I think I need to think really critically about what would have to be true so that a person who had this problem wouldn't need to email me. Uh, maybe people can issue their own refunds. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I have the, the videos more front and center. Uh, yeah. It's funny. Also your <laughs> the next bit of work of like recoding it in tailwind from bootstrap to get yourself more excited about it. Uh, I have had the exact same framework for file inbox. Uh, like I have had the exact same idea right now it's in bootstrap and I thought, Oh, if only this was in tailwind, it would be so much more exciting to work on. Uh, I don't know how it's going to go for you, but like I have had that idea for the last <laughs> year and a half. Yeah. Uh, so I wish you good luck <laughs> cultivating your own excitement. Uh, in yeah. Doing this. Yeah. Um, so yes, hopefully <laughs> I've wanted to change it to tailwind <laughs> already for about uh, six months. So maybe I only have a, okay. a year left to go and then I'll be a year and a half. And, um, yeah, so I've done this, I fixed this a couple of different ways in the past. Uh, one is just, so especially with like meeting place and now acorn chat, um, trying to put as much information in the spot where people are going to need it as possible. So it's almost mm -hmm. like in the app, sort of writing mini docs that go right next to the thing. Um, and most mm -hmm. people won't read it, but if you do read it, then that's basically the docs right there. Um, yeah. so that's one thing to do. The other is, I think it's a great idea to 
record videos, um, especially if you transcribe them and then put that in a Google searchable way on your website. Yeah, um, yeah. Because those are going to be really high intent keywords and uh, Google's going to, you know, index them and then you're going to get probably a lot of, you know, people get a lot of traffic from docs. Um, I was reading, uh, well, so Tailwind, so um, they said specifically that the docs are the highest source of their sales, you know, through, through Tailwind UI. Uh, which is not surprising at all for Tailwind, but then a bunch of people chimed in and basically said for their, you know, B2B SaaS, it was the same way. Like the docs page was their biggest referrer to the sales pages. Um, Love it. So, yeah. What a great way to generate content too. Like people are, maybe maybe I'm just thinking about customer support emails incorrectly. That like, instead of a burden and evidence that I'm bad at <laughs> supporting my product, maybe it's people reaching out to me, telling me ideas for content to make it is like exactly what they need to do and so there's yeah. probably 10 times you know like we talked about engagement right it's probably 10 times that number of people who think that and then like yeah just gets stuck in your funnel because of it um, or yep. whatever and it's already in the customer's words hmm interesting and i could imagine the machine i would build of like the email pops up and then i hit a keyboard shortcut and then uh i record a little video about it and then that slurps right over to my the file inbox youtube channel and then it's going to be a short video so that'll upload pretty quickly and then in response to that person who just sent me that email i can send them the video and then uh, i imagine i'll hit a critical mass like after video 20 i'll start getting a lot more cash hits of like oh this is just like video five that i made and then i can just send yeah. that instead of making a new one huh this feels like a breakthrough this feels like a way to make this fun okay cool what a good idea cool so that's what cool. i did this week what did you get up to so <laughs> I, <laughs> sounds like a tangent coming oh the, this is a whole thing we're about to get into so for the last mm, 10 years i have wanted a 3d printer and the deal that i made with myself is like i don't quite know what i would do with this if i had it and things like uh i materialize and shape ways exist where if there's a single part that i want to make i can just ship it off and get it and their 3d printers are much better than the ones that i could get so when i get to the point where i have more things in my queue of things to 3d print than would make up the cost of a 3d printer which has been like around 300 dollars for a, a decent one then i'll get a 3d printer and i've existed in that state for 10 years and recently, I've had some ideas for, it'd be really cool if I had one of these paper cutting machines because I had this idea that uh, for the Oculus Quest 2, it's uh, it would be really nice for me to use it later in the evening if there was a red light filter uh, or a, a blue light filter colored red on it. And I made a little prototype just like cutting it up with scissors and put it in, works great, I love it. Uh, but it's like all janky and I gave one to my siblings and they were like, oh, this is great. And so that that would be like a fun thing to be able to give to people who have an Oculus Quest 2 or maybe sell it on Etsy or something if I can yeah. figure out how to automate that. Uh, but to do that well, I was thinking, okay, I'd, I'd want one of these little automated paper things so that I just make the design and then I can cut out a bunch of them. And then my sister is getting married next month and there are some customized things I want to get for her. Her name is Sophia. Her fiance's name is Patrick, S and P. So I was like, how cute would it be if I got them little salt and pepper shakers that were engraved oh, with yeah, sure. Sophia and Patrick, yes. Uh, so I had these, so for that, for that, I would need like a CNC machine or maybe a, a high powered laser cutter. And I have a friend locally who has these things. And I was like, hey, could, like, 
for for specifically the wedding thing, could I uh, pay you to do this? And he was like, yes, for $80. And I was like, $80 sure sounds a lot like $300. <laughs> Maybe let me let's just dip my toe in, just see what the deal is. And there are some great laser cutters on Amazon for around $300. They measure the laser's power in uh, milliwatts, I think. And so like for a, a 15 a 15 watt laser or a 1500 milliwatt laser that was going to be around $300 and like it can engrave almost anything has a little bit more trouble with shiny reflective metal and it can cut through thin wood and paper and then I was thinking oh actually this would also solve my problem for the paper cutting thing and uh, then I started seeing in shopping around a little, a little bit more there were some combination uh, CNC machines and laser cutters and i was like how does that work but okay if you already have the three axis thing and you have the bed well you just swap out the head instead of a laser you have a little spinny and dremel thing and i was like oh that's cool maybe i can get both of these things at the same time and then i can do some cnc stuff and i can do some laser stuff and then <laughs> i found the snapmaker 2.0 the sequel to the successful snapmaker one kickstarter campaign that is a combination cnc machine laser cutter and 3D printer for $1,000. Now, $1,000, you might be saying, <laughs> isn't that so much more than 300? Well, yes, it is. But it's a really nice, all of those things. And like, if I'm spending around $300 for each of them, okay, well, that's about $1,000. And now I get a bunch of cool things. Like there's a camera on top that gives you a little preview of what the thing is. And it's made of this really high quality, like custom CNC aluminum, and instead of like the little chintzy stuff that you, you have to make uh, yourself. And there's a whole community around it. And you know, it has a, a nice screen that uh, goes to it. And now it's one device. And so now it's from a minimalistic mentality, like it's gonna take me 10 minutes to transition and to swap out the heads and swap out the bed for these things. But now it's just one thing that I have to worry about instead of these three separate machines and I'm able to do this. So this last week, my brain has just been exploding with like, well, <laughs> if I have a 3D printer already and I can just 3D print anything, the the cost for me of doing this is now so much lower. Uh, what things would I have if if the only thing I was paying for was like the the amount of plastic that it weighs? Uh, and so I've got all of these ideas now of like, I could 3D print a laptop stand for my girlfriend because she said she wanted a laptop stand and uh, I could engrave these wedding gifts and I could do the, the Oculus Quest 2 thing and uh, for my time tracker, there's a device now that I'm thinking of prototyping that's like a little keychain thing where you push buttons on it and uh, that's updating the thing that you're working on. Uh, and now I'm thinking, okay, I could I could do more outrageous things for the wedding of like, maybe I CNC man cards is a thing that I've seen. <laughs> so like off the joke, ah, you, you lost your man card for doing this. I could like hand out those man cards for things. Uh, and I just like immediately before this podcast, I had the idea, oh, wasn't it a thing that you could vacuum your hair and then it cut it to a really precise length. Cause I got trimmers that work really well for the sides and back. Uh, but the top is still kind of weird. It's, it's difficult for me to get a consistent length on the top. Uh, cause I, I do like two inches on the top and that, that doesn't quite work for the trimmer, but I was thinking, okay, if you had a vacuum cleaner and then you had like something to cut your hair, that would work really well. This apparently was a product in the nineties, uh, called the flow beef and yeah. got really popular during coronavirus. Yep. And now old versions of this, it, it's no longer being made, but you can buy old ones of it on Amazon for $280. <laughs> and on Thingiverse, 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 uh, people have made prototypes of this of like, here is the flow bee. You can just print it out 
for just the cost of plastic. Yeah, I'm really uh, surprised. And there's some clever things with different designs. I'm really surprised no one has tried to mass produce those again. Like if the company's out of business, just try to print a whole bunch or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That'd be a really good idea. And I love this solution of just like anyone anywhere can get an idea for a thing and then you can just print it out at home. It's I feel like I'm living in the future. I feel like I I just got a major significant life upgrade. Uh that's that's what I got up to. <laughs> uh what so the the hot take I'd love on that is like do you have a 3D printer and if so I'd love to know the things that you print on it. Uh and whether or not you do I'd I'd love to know if you could just 3D print anything. What would you 3D print? What what things would you make in this new world where you can just download the design for a thing and have it be a real thing in your life? Yeah. So no, I don't. Uh sort of the same reason like it's like Every once in a while, I think, oh, I really want to 3D print a little part or something, but it's yeah. just not enough, you know, enough times for me to spend it. What, what I almost bought um, several years ago, maybe five, six years ago, was a CNC machine um, because those seem super cool. Uh, there was this guy who blogged all about how he CNC stuff because you can get extremely accurate with a CNC machine. And then if you, you cast it in silicon and then you pour resin into that and make a part mm. more, more, more accurate than 3D printers. So that seems super cool. Uh, but I could not, like he made like little toy, like cars and stuff. And I like, I, yeah. I couldn't think of a better use than that. <laughs> so I just didn't buy one, which is good. Cause I, like, I would have used it once, you know, and then set it on the shelf. Um, yeah. recently, so we, we got a new Christmas tree and the old one, like it still works, but the lights don't all work. And so, and it's like smaller for the new house that we bought. So it's like a small tree where the lights doesn't work. So my wife turned it into her Harry Potter tree. <laughs> and so now we have two trees every year and the, the old one with no lights is now a Harry Potter. Like, um, so there's all sorts, like we took these, there's these little like Funko pop makes these like Harry Potter figures. And I drilled a hole in their head and like hung a thing. on uh, them. Okay. Um, okay. and then she got a lot of, we went to, when we went to London, we visited, there's a shop run by the people who did like a lot of the artwork for the movies. Hmm. Um, so they're like an independent, you know, there, there are a couple who d did a lot of the artwork. Anyway, so they sell things. So we got a lot of these little artwork things. Anyway, cool. what we wanted to do was 3D print a whole bunch of, you know, like it, any, you know, thing you can imagine basically is 3D printable on, you know, on Thingiverse um, from the yeah. movies. And so I was like, ah, maybe I could do that. But that's like, you know, I'm spending $300 for the printer and then, you know, more on the filaments just for like Christmas ornaments. And that seems yeah. like a waste. Anyway, so no, I don't have one. But if I had one, I would probably print some Harry Potter uh, ornaments for my wife. All right, a new goal that I have in life is to pressure you into getting one, showing you how cool they are. <laughs> it, uh, it wouldn't take much. I'm, I'm very every time a new one comes out, I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, but, this yeah. is the one that pushed me over the edge. Like, if I had found out about this when it came out, I think I would have bought it right away. Uh, because like, it wouldn't make sense for me to buy a thousand dollar three D printer, and it wouldn't make sense for me to buy a thousand dollar CNC machine or laser cutter. But for all three of those things. My gosh, what an expanded problem space of problems that are now in the adjacent possible of things I can solve. Of like, yeah, if I wanted to CNC a very accurate thing and then make a silicon mold of it or something, uh, I can do that. And if it would make more sense to 3D print it first, uh, I can do that. And maybe I'd 3D print it and then CNC it later to get some more finer detail. Um, yeah, I'm very excited to see what yeah. comes out of this. The, the other reason I almost have bought one is so... Uh, our library has a few in like this digital media lab. Um, and they ran a thing once where they, um, they helped you make Harry Potter wands, 3d printed Harry Potter wands uh, uh, for, cool. for the kids. Right. And so our kids did that. And I saw their brains kind of light up with all the different possibilities of being able to make yeah. things. And so like, that is something really interesting that I, I could, you know, that's sort of 
able if I'm able to expand my kids' minds in that way, then it's probably worth a thousand dollars. Just like think of it like an educational expense, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, I think you could. I think you could pull the trigger on this today, <laughs> <laughs> just for your kids' educate for the children, Chris. Right. For the think, children. Think of the kids. <laughs> I would love to make a quick plug for this 3D modeling uh, system that I found called Open SCAD or Open SCAD. I don't quite know how to say it. Are you familiar with it? Have you looked at that? No, we used some free program by Google when we did ours. I don't know what it was. Maybe though. SketchUp. It, it, so. It wasn't SketchUp. I know that okay. SketchUp exists. It was something like SketchUp, but it wasn't. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I hate SketchUp, uh, and I hate the uh, like more commercialized version of that uh, SolidWorks and, and programs that work like that. Yeah. Because it's a GUI, and those just don't make sense to me. And I want to reach in and like know like, no, tell me the data that you're working with because I just need I need this edge to line up with this edge, and I don't want to click and drag it. I just want to say like okay. I want to know what the code is, and then have these numbers be the same. And uh, Open SCAD or OpenSCAD is that. It's a programmatic language where you can deal with primitives and like do this three-dimensional geometry uh, things of adding and, and subtracting. And I didn't realize this until uh, two days ago, but there's a whole library of parts that people have made in this language. So if you want to like have a screw, there's a library of someone who's, who like has written out, here are all the different real-world screw types and you just, as a function, you just create the screw and here's all the parameters that a screw would make sense of like the thread count and the width and the length and everything else. And then that's your model. That makes so much more sense to me than uh, having these click and drag GUI interfaces where it, it isn't as uh, straightforward. And then like you have code. And so, okay, I can check this into version control and say like that's my cool. laptop stand this is laptop stand version one and we published on the GitHub and also published on Thingiverse because that just compiles to an STL. Uh, so I, I think that's the way forward. It's kind of tricky and more of the softer geometry, but I'm thinking for that I could maybe do something in uh, on the on the Oculus. There's some uh, 3D things, and SketchUp also has a VR app. Uh, so I'm I'm really excited to figure out like what's my process for building these things, and uh, is is there could I maybe like preview things in VR and still be coding them in uh, Open SCAD? Uh, there's the the tooling is not quite where i would like it to be but like there's a there's a lot of potential there so i'm excited to learn yeah. how that works that's super cool i guess i didn't i should have realized but i didn't realize that there were code solutions like because everything mm -hmm. you see is visual um like ui based so that's neat yeah and just makes so much more sense for yeah. my brain i'm reminded of have you read any neil stevenson like yeah age? yeah i read well so seven e seven eves him seven eves i don't know Maybe. I should look that up. I'll link them both in the show notes. We'll figure it out. Uh, in the Diamond Age. Yeah, Neil Stevenson, Seven Eves. Okay, cool. Uh, I'll, I'll read that one. I haven't read that one yet. It's really um, good. In the Diamond Age, this is concept. He like invents the concept of 3D printing, and there's uh, there's feeds that feed in just matter from the ocean and then feed it to everyone's house like a public utility. And then that's the stuff that you then make stuff out of. And there's a scene where this little girl uh, gets hold of her parents' contraption uh, to print out stuff and starts printing out like you know little doll beds for all of her dolls <laughs> and uh and you're just able to do that you're just able to like that's how you order stuff we don't have amazon we have you can make you can manufacture anything on demand at your house and like we're there where there's some limitations to it but how cool is it that we can just do that we, it's just it's just code it's just data and that defines the thing 
it's like the platonic ideal to to the instantiation of the thing is okay we're, we're sort of making the platonic ideal of the thing with the code that that thing is and then you can instantiate it by printing it out uh i, I feel like i'm living in the future i'm that, so excited yeah. it gets here later today oh <laughs> oh it's it's so exciting yeah uh that's funny that's that reminds me of a story that happened i think it was just this last year um so uh you mentioned Amazon and like the, the echo, you know, dot devices are really close to that. So there was a story of someone who didn't uh, lock down purchasing and their four-year-old ordered like a, or, you know, kid, their kid ordered a giant stuffed banana. <laughs> and so, you know, hundred dollar giant stuffed banana showed up one day and like, what, what are they going to do? Tell their kid now, like, and their kid opened the box and now bonded with the stuffed banana and like, what are you going to do? Send it back. And, you know, uh, amazing that's great what a what a great future that like when in history has it been possible for a child to do something like that yeah. like they're not going to go wander into the village and accidentally <laughs> talk to a merchant and buy stuff from them but like we've smoothed out the process of ordering things so much that like yeah you can you can do it accidentally now a child can do it yeah. amazing I love which, it. which side note uh, we for a while, for a long time we had like one ipad for for you know for me and the two kids <laughs> like it was my ipad yeah. but they got to use it you know and then for christmas we finally bought uh kin the kindle fire kid editions which come with a great plastic case um and they are really really nice so um I hadn't, we, we didn't own any Kindle stuff before that, but on the kid editions, you can lock it down so they cannot spend real money, which is great. No in-app purchases, which is awesome. I want that for myself. Um, and I think you pay like $3 a month per kid or something, and they can play unlimited games, anything that's on this Kindle unlimited, um, like thing. So you get like, uh, like, so my wife is now playing the Sims, <laughs> which, you know, normally costs money, but it's totally free, uh, for three, you know, for $3 a month. Um, and, and they get to play a whole bunch of games that also has like books and audio books. So we can say like, you can, you can play your Kindles, but only books, um, you know, that kind of thing. And then there's all sorts of parental controls. So like we'd have them turn off at eight 30 at night and stuff. Um, so yeah, if you have kids, Kindle fires, kid edition are a good deal. That's so neat. I will link those in the show notes. Yeah. Good. For, I, I like that making that's the, it's like if someone made an iPad for kids, that's, that's what you would want to do. You'd want to be able to limit it in. Yeah, cool. I'm I'm excited to have kids so I can <laughs> use these sorts of things and uh, justify purchases like a 3D printer with. Uh, it's it's for the children. That's right. It's for the children to to play around with stuff. Uh, I have one more topic I would love to talk with you about. Something that came up for me this week. What do you know about NFTs? So not much. Um, I know. That, so it's very interesting that they are. It's basically like a digital receipt on the blockchain for a piece of art which can be anything digital so uh you know gifs or movies or um jpegs and one just sold for what 69 million dollars i think <laughs> so stupid yeah. uh so yeah they're interesting <laughs> but i don't know much past that uh yeah my position on them has flipped completely last week if you would ask me my thoughts on nfts i would have said this is the dumbest thing ever <laughs> because you're not buying anything you're like what does it mean that i have a token that represents this jpeg but the jpeg is identical to the jpeg that anyone can get if they just download it i can sort of yep. like it, it makes sense to me that you would want to own physical art because that's so much more difficult to replicate it it means something to me that you own the mona lisa because 
okay, now there's history behind this physical object and like you, you can go up to it and there's something sort of mystical about you can see the brush strokes that Leonardo da Vinci centuries ago painted this by hand. And this physical object has a physical history of like, this is the chain of people who owned it. And here's the time in history where it got stolen and then uh, was brought back. And like, the, here are the people who were involved in this thing. So that, that's, that means something for me in a way that it doesn't make sense to own a JPEG because a JPEG is data. It's trivially easy to copy. Uh, anytime you're viewing the object, you are copying it. And so who, who cares that you own it? That was my, <laughs> that was my view a week ago and it's completely flipped because I realized that if there was an NFT for each XKCD comic or each blog post by Derek Sivers or Patrick McKenzie, and I could own that. I could say like, oh man, XKCD number one, two, three. I, I digitally own that comic and maybe you could make it, you could, you could sweeten the deal for me of like maybe in XKCD.com. It has a little banner at the bottom that says this comic is currently owned by Christian Janko. Right. How cool would that be for me to be able to link people to the comic that was like meaningful to me in my life? Uh, and for them to go to it and be like, Oh, you own this comic. Like, this really is meaningful to you. You you have sunk an amount of money into this thing. So like there's an amount of money that I would pay just to burn to, to be able to experience those emotions of my identity and the identity of this comic are now intertwined publicly. That I've, I've like proclaimed ownership of this thing and that's a way that I can express my identity of like I'm the type of person who values the idea expressed in this comic and as proof of that, I have put money down. And I might say that that's like, I don't know, I might, I might spend like $300 for the, the experience of being able to do that. But there's an additional layer of NFTs of like, it's still very much cryptocurrency. So if I want to at any point in the future, I can sell this. And art, depending on the type of art it is and depending on the economy and different things, can appreciate in value. And that's a risk and it's a whole calculus of it. But like thinking of it that way, okay, if I'm, if I'm willing to burn $300 on it and there's some volatility in the market and like... I, I XKCD is a thing that a lot of people enjoy and I could expect that there are a lot of people out there who feel the same way about XKCD comics. And so, uh, and there's a, there's an active market trading these comics. And so I, I can see what they're buying and selling for. I could justify spending a, a 10 to a hundred times multiple of that on this thing. If I'm looking at it as a, as an investment, as opposed to just like a, a proclamation of my identity, if other people are also finding it valuable and if, if there's a, an active market for it. And that makes perfect sense to me of like, okay, I get it. I didn't get it before because I haven't seen any art on the blockchain that I actually care about. I think it's all bad. <laughs> uh, but if it was if it was a Derek Sivers blog post and at the bottom of that blog post, it could say, this is currently owned by Christian Jenko, like that would be worth something to me. And then once it's worth something to me, I can understand how it would be valuable to other people. And now I can see how I could sink, <laughs> maybe not $69 million, <laughs> but like, I, I could put a lot more of my own money towards this as an expression of my identity. Uh, and then like, it's kind of cool that instead of just owning full index mutual funds, like I have some weird things in there too. Like part of my <laughs> investment portfolio are XKCD comics and blog posts yeah. by uh, cool people. Uh, 
Well, what's your opinion on that? Where, where yeah. do you fall on that? So, I, Which of my arguments have uh, <laughs> swayed you? I, I definitely think it's amazing for artists because uh, a lot of digital artists haven't had much of a way to capitalize on their work other than, you know, like selling prints, which is not that for most people is not that valuable actually um and for like so the creator of nancat right that was one of the first major ones i think that was half a million dollars or something it sold for um oh i hadn't read about that yeah but before that he made zero dollars on that right and it's used yeah. everywhere like people know what it is and people you know so like it makes sense that he should get some money for creating nancat <laughs> um and now he has um and uh, i don't know if this is automatic for nfts or not i don't know that much about him but I think he gets 10% of any sale going forward also, um, like the artist does automatically. And that happens because it's on the blockchain, right? That can just be yeah. part of the thing. And so, um, so if it, you know, it sold for half a million dollars, if it sells for, you know, $5 million in 10 years, he gets another half a million dollars. Um, the artist does. And so like, uh, so I think that's awesome for artists. Um, the other thing is like, like people collect stuff all the time and it doesn't really make that much sense a lot of times. So like mm -hmm. you can co collect, you know, baseball cards or comic books and like sh you could photocopy a comic book right and then you would have the same content but it's different than owning the actual thing um and so yeah that's definitely what nfts give you um i think i think they will be i think this as a concept will be huge you know and yeah like 20 or 100 years um whether or not the, the thing selling today will still have value in four or five years i have no idea <laughs> you know like is this a good short-term investment probably not but in a hundred years, <laughs> I bet NANCAT, you know, will sell for a billion dollars, you know, whatever inflation sure. adjusted is for that. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It's super interesting. NANCAT, absolutely. What a, what a perfect example of a thing to be valued in this way. Because, yeah, that is, that is a purely digital creation that I can see being valuable to someone if I had a whole bunch of money. And I think NANCAT is really cool. Uh, if that's been meaningful in my life in some way. And I know that it's done the work of becoming popular. It's it's just as much in the public consciousness as the Mona Lisa is. Of course, I, I'm going to put money towards that. And like, what a, what a fantastic benefit of this system of that now the creator actually gets rewarded for it. Uh, I love it. It's, yeah, it, it, it didn't make sense at all to me last week and it, it makes perfect sense to me this week. Yeah. Uh, the other thing it fixes is the problem of provenance. So there's this great documentary new on Netflix. I can't remember what it's called, but it's about an art forgery that happened um, at a gallery in New York. And over, I don't know, 20 years or something, they sold like $80 million worth of fake uh, Roscoe's and Pollock's. And there were, there were like 12 artists or something. Hmm. And before they knew they were fake, like each of these, you know, paintings, like they range between, you know, a hundred thousand and $12 million or something like that. Hmm. Um, and they sort of had to like to get provenance for those uh which means like try to figure out if they're real or not basically they like mm -hmm. went to experts to see if it like the same type of paint was used in the same style and like it was a really big deal and then in the court case that followed which the documentary covers it's like the person selling them at the gallery actually still maintains that she thought they were real like she brought in the experts like they said they were you know they looked original and that kind of stuff mm -hmm. and so but now if it's on the blockchain like there's no question it either was on yeah. the blockchain or it's not. And unless yeah. you 51% attack the blockchain, you can't change that. Um, yep. So it, it fixes that problem, which is super interesting. Yep. The problem for me then becomes, how do you know, like who, who's to say that this Nyancat is the real one? Yeah, so that came uh, up with Nyancat especially because the person you're trusting 
I think that was sold through foundation.app. And so you have to trust the original person to put it on the blockchain. That is the creator of Nancat actually selling the thing. And if not, mm -hmm. then, then you get fakes. Um, so yeah, I, there's no fix for that. Uh, that's true. I could see also a problem of like, what if the creator decides like, oh, how great is this that I've made a bunch of money from this? Let's do that again. And then he says, sells it again to sell another one. <laughs> <laughs> and it's still mine. Like, who's to say that he can't make a second one or uh, increase the number of shares, I think, is a thing that you can do on NFTs. You can have the, like, yeah, there's like copies thing. or something. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. My guess is there will be some modern art piece, which is someone who sells the same thing twice. <laughs> and then yeah. they'll sell the rights to that modern art piece as another NFT. That's, <laughs> that's my guess there. <laughs> um, that's kind of like the guy who was investigating what is modern art. It's a YouTube video. And um, in the end, he like takes off his, his beanie, which he's like known for, for wearing. And he like throws it out of a window or something. And then he frames the beanie and he says, this is modern art because it has a history now and everything. And the hilarious part of the whole thing is he later sold that framed beanie for some crazy amount of money. <laughs> and so Amazing. it really did become modern art because he did something anyway. So that's the first person to double sell an NFT will. That's modern art, I guess. I love it. A framed beanie. <laughs> like the like the toilet that, like the, or the, the urinal. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, Seth Godin line. I suppose... It's up to the artists. If if the artist wants to dilute their own art, they're they're like in charge of the supply side of their own little marketplace. If they okay, yeah, that makes sense because there are artists who were just like prolific who like Van Gogh made. I, I can't remember what the statistic is, but it's something like he averaged painting three paintings a day for like three years. Oh wow. Uh, Longer than that, actually. I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, he, he's just got thousands and thousands of paintings. And so Van Gogh is a value, very valuable artist. But I imagine for a random Van Gogh painting, that would be worth less than, I don't know, a Da Vinci painting. Because there were only ever five Da Vinci paintings that were ever discovered. Uh, and maybe if I knew more about art, I could probably make a better analogy. But I can imagine an artist where their style of art is they make prints of things. So like they etch things into copper and then they make a hundred prints of them and then they destroy the copper and then on, they're onto the next thing. So for every, for every print that's worth like one, one hundredth of if there was an identical artist who, instead of making prints made a painting. And I think that's just up to the artist of, so as long as you've verified, like, yes, this actually is the real Nyanket that came from the actual creator of Nyanket. It's up to him if he wants to sell one or a hundred copies of those things and yeah. And then I guess, I don't know if you're a buyer and you want to own all hundred, you could own all hundred. Yes. Yeah. Like you own all of them. Uh, okay. Yeah. That still makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. I, NFTs. I think uh, Salvador Dali is the most famous artist I know of that did that. He made lithiographs, which are basically just copies. So, but, mm. but he l numbered them, right? So from the beginning he decided how many he was going to make and then he numbered them. Um, cool. Yeah. Nice. That's all I got. That's all I got, too. Then I will see you. <laughs> Excuse me. I was trying to time it so I sneeze after the episode. I'll see you next week. See you next Goodbye. week. Bye.